I really do wish, if you weren't there Friday night at the Art and Sports Camp, that you could have seen Emery dancing Friday evening. I'm going to get the video of that at some point. She was amazing. She was cutting a rug. And what impressed me is she was, like, actually doing some of the movements of the other girls that were dancing. My mom has told me repeatedly, my mom watches little Emery, and she said, she's told me repeatedly how smart she is. She's really smart. So I guess I'm not surprised seeing her um, dancing and getting the moves down. And Oh, it was great. Um, I also forgot to mention that probably one of the best parts of the camp was the fact that the campers got to hear how much Jesus loves them. And that no matter what they've done or what they will do, Jesus' love is an unconditional, never-failing, never-stopping love. And I didn't see Justin's lesson, but Mary said he did fantastic in communicating some of that truth. And Mary, she's such a gifted teacher when it comes to the little ones. I got to see her lesson and be a part of it, and she did a wonderful job too. So that, that's, that's where it's at. Um, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I've been gone the last two weekends. My family and I, we went to the beach. We went to Topsail Beach in North Carolina and had a wonderful time with uh, two families that we went with, uh, close friends, one of them being uh, Jim and Brenda's son, Andy, and his wife, Jordan, and their wonderful kids. We had a good time. The kids played very well together which you parents know is such a break for you as a parent, that them having playmates. The weather was good. It was a little bit colder than normal, but it, it, the water was still warm enough and it was still hot out enough that you wanted to be in. So, and I, I actually prefer that. That way when you're not right on the beach, you don't just sweat to death everywhere you go. So relaxing, refreshing, and uh, I was blessed to have Ryan teach for me. And our church was blessed to have Mr. Rodocker uh, teach as well. I've listened to just a, a little bit of his messages, and I, I will finish it. But the stuff that I heard was just good stuff. And we are, we are so gr- greatly gifted by God with a group of men that have an ability to teach and are willing to do it. I think it's so important that you hear from other voices besides myself. It's good for me to hear from other voices. And I think it, it helps those in their faith journey who have to get up here and teach, right? God uses it to stretch them and grow them. And so it's just a, a win for everybody, in my opinion. But I really appreciate Ryan doing that for me. And we are so greatly blessed to have Ryan and Janelle as such dear friends. So Today, we're going to return to our sermon series, The Upside Down Kingdom. And in this sermon series, what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus' offer of a lifetime. This offer of a lifetime to have him as your king, to live in his kingdom in the midst of this world's kingdom, to have his rule and power guiding you, directing you, empowering you. In his strategy of living, 
which is, of course, the way to the abundant life that he came to give. And it's the opposite of the prideful, self-reliant, God-forsaken way that many people in our world choose to live. And for those that accept this offer of a lifetime, the abundant life they find consists of satisfaction, it consists of security, and it consists of significance. And that's what our hearts crave. That's what our hearts were designed to experience. And of course, it's only found in having Jesus as your king and living in his kingdom. And what we've been looking at is we've been looking at the upside-down ways of Jesus' kingdom is how starkly different those ways really are. And it's these ways that the person who has Jesus as their king and is doing life with him and his kingdom, they will be transformed into the sort of person that will live these upside-down ways out. And so, we're going to continue looking at another one of those upside-down ways of Jesus and his people and his kingdom. And before we check out this upside-down way, which is the most difficult of all ways, let's pray. Let's ask God, through our time together this morning, to transform our head, our heart, and our hands so that we live more fully in step with his kingdom ways. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to pick up your word and to be a group like this and to look at what it has to say for us today together. We thank you that you desire to transform us, that you desire an abundant life for us. That's why you came. And you don't leave us in the dark in terms of how that abundant life can be found through you. And what strategy for living will lead to the satisfaction, security, and significance our hearts were designed and created for. Lord, I pray that as we spend this time meditating on your scripture, thinking about what it means for us today, applying it to our own individual lives, your spirit would use it to transform us more further into the ways of your heart, your mind, in your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is what we're checking out this morning, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Again, this is a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest teaching by anyone ever in the history of the world, the teaching that has radically changed the whole world, especially Western civilization. It's just phenomenal what we're looking at here. Let's not forget that. Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So Jesus, he starts this section of his sermon with this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Now what Jesus was referring back to is one of God's laws found in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. For example, Exodus 21, 23 through 25 says, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Have you ever thought of this Old Testament law as harsh? I have. And as I was studying this passage, the commentaries that I read helped me to see that this law was not harsh at all. It was quite an act of mercy on God's part. How so? Well, God wanted the Israelite people, the Jewish people, to have a legal system that would govern with justice and fairness. And so when the judges of Israel decided a case, he wanted to make sure that the punishment always fit the crime. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not an eye and a hand for an eye, right? Not three teeth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Nothing more, nothing less, right? Theologian John Stott, he said this, This law was extremely good and merciful for it to find justice in restrained revenge. It was a law that made criminals pay for their crime, which helped to curb crime, but it was also a law that protected the criminal by ensuring that the criminal didn't receive an unfair, unjust punishment beyond what they deserved to experience. It was a law about fairness. Fairness for the offended and fairness for the offender. That's what good legal systems do, right? That's what we want in our country. We want a fair and just legal system. We want justice to be served, nothing more and nothing less. We don't want criminals to go unpunished, and we don't want them punished beyond what they deserve. I know that I, for all the speeding tickets that I have received, I'm sure glad I have not received multiple life sentences in prison for my excessive speed. But maybe you're thinking, wait a minute. Jesus is saying, you've heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, don't resist the evil person. And so is Jesus saying that a just legal system is wrong? 
Is that what he's communicating? Is he saying that the Roman civil authorities of his day are just to turn a blind eye to law-breaking? Are they just supposed to let evil go unchecked? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus would say, no, there needs to be a just legal system in place. That illegal system should never punish people beyond what they deserve to be punished. Here's the error that I believe, and I think the scriptures make this clear, that the Jewish religious leaders made. They took this law that was meant for Israel in the governance of the Israelite people, and they applied it to personal relationships. And what ended up happening is there was all this revenge and retaliation on the person-to-person level. This is what I think Jesus is speaking against. I do not think he's speaking against the government's call to rule justly. He would be contradicting what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 13 or The Apostle Paul would be contradicting Jesus. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul declares that government has been given by God as a divine institution that has the power to punish wrongdoers, which would be impossible, by the way, without force. And so sometimes force is needed. See, some people have taken these verses to say, like, a country can never, ever, ever, ever go to war. I know that's a big, hotly debated issue even in the Christian realm. But I don't think Jesus is saying that here. Maybe you can support that with other verses, but I don't think you can with this passage of Scripture. He's speaking against using the law to justify personal revenge. Because the Jewish leaders, they they taught, if somebody hurt you, you hurt back. And you were right. In doing so, you take matters into your own hands and you make them pay. You get even. That's precisely the sort of resistance of evil that Jesus is speaking against. Jesus' upside down kingdom resists revenge and retaliation. Which is completely different than the rest of the world, right? And the ways of the world. Because the ways of the world, they, they have the strategy for living that you make people pay. In fact, just a few years back, there was this whole television show, series, titled Revenge. And it focused on this lady's revenge, a plot to make every individual who killed or imprisoned her father pay for what they have done. But this is not the way of Jesus' kingdom, nor is this the way of Jesus' kingdom people. Their response to hurt and injury, personal hurt and injury, will be, shockingly, it will be love. Jesus' kingdom promotes love instead. Love, we have often talked about, is seeking the welfare of a person. Jesus' kingdom people, when they are hurt, they will seek the welfare of the person that has hurt them. And Jesus described what this would look like in practice. He says, my people 
will be so permeated with love that they will turn the other cheek. Now, turn the other cheek is an expression that we often use, but I wonder if we know what it means. What does it mean to turn the other cheek? Well, because Jesus talks about slapping the right cheek, and most people are right-handed, scholars believe that Jesus was talking about a backhanded slap to the face. It's the only way you can hit somebody in the right hand, or with the right hand on the right side of the cheek, unless you're going to get awkward with it, right? In that kind of slap, that kind of slap, according to rabbinic law, according to the Jewish leaders of that day, was two times more insulting as hitting a person with the front of the hand. The backhand, hitting someone with the backhand, as one scholar put it, meant calculated contempt, withering disdain. Perhaps today's equivalent would be cussing somebody out. Although I'm not sure what is more insulting, right? Getting cussed out or having somebody slap you on the cheek with the back of their hand. But that's besides the point. The point is that the person that is so radically transformed by the kingdom, they will receive the most horrible insults, the most horrible belittling, the most horrible condescending words and actions from others, but respond not just with biting their tongue, but actually respond with love. They will seek the welfare of the person that's insulting them. Hmm. Next, a person that is permeated with the kingdom of love of Christ will give up their cloak. In Jesus' day, you could literally sue someone for the very shirt on their back. Like, you could take them to court and sue them for their shirt. And what Jesus says, if they go after your tunic, which was the inner garment that you wore, my kingdom people will give them their cloak, their outer garments. And what's crazy, according to the laws back then, you couldn't sue a person to have their cloak overnight because it was their cloak that kept them warm as they slept. So if you sued for it, you had to, you had to give it back at nighttime. And Jesus is saying here, no, you, they can't even take your cloak for good and you will give it to them. A person transformed by Christ will give their enemy more than what is asked of them. Jesus goes on. Person permeated with my sort of love will go two miles. What does this mean? Well, Roman authorities had the power to take any person, no matter what you were doing, no matter what circumstances you were in, and they could say, I need you to carry this a mile. They could do it to anybody at any point. We hate interruptions. Can you imagine that? They had the authority to say, you're taking this. You're carrying it a mile. Um, this happened to most Jews who despised the Romans. And this gave them just one more reason 
to despise the Romans. Often Christians were targeted for this sort of thing as well. And so what Jesus, Simon of Cyrene, forced to carry Jesus' cross. This is what was happening. He had no choice in the matter. The Roman authorities could make him do that or else. This was normal. But here, a person with permeated with Jesus' love, when they are required to carry a burden by authorities that they don't particularly like or agree with, they're going to joyfully help that authority carry out their governmental responsibilities. Even the Romans. A person transformed by Christ will assist and not resist enemy authorities. Then we, he goes on, give to him who asks. A, a person permeated with Jesus' love will give to the person who asks, even if that person is attempting to injure them through borrowing their money or taking their money. They will give generously to them out of their resources. And so here we have come to probably, I think it is, the most challenging bits of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Haven't we? Most challenging. Not that other commands in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus are easy, such as handling your anger in an appropriate way or seeking reconciliation with a brother or sister is a walk in the park, or if not that refraining from sexual lust is in your heart as a picnic, or it's not as working out your differences in your marriage is just a light and easy thing to do, but loving those who hurt you and loving those who are downright evil, who don't just hurt you, but are actually seeking to destroy you and dismantle you, Really? Does Jesus really want us to do this? Like, is he serious? Two errors have been made in answering this question. Here's the first error. So some people, what they do is when they read this, they're just like, holy moly, this is impossible. Obviously, Jesus didn't mean us to really follow this. All this is meant to do is to show us our sinfulness and direct us to Jesus as our Savior. And so they don't even try. That's all this is meant for. That's wrong. <laughs> Over uh, right around 20% of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is focused on you not being just a hearer of the words that he's giving you, but a doer. In fact, he ends the Sermon on the Mount with talking about those who obey my words will be like a person that has built their life on the rock. So that's not right. What other people have done is they, this is the other error, error that they have made, is they said, yes, these are meant to be obey, obeyed. And so they exert all their willpower and seek to obey these commands only to fail and fail and fail and fail. Both of these errors will lead you to a life that chokes and not the easy yoke of Christ. Is there a better way? Is there a better way than just ignoring them 
or all this striving and straining to try and obey them, but failing and failing and failing. Is there a better way? There is a better way. And here's what the focus needs to be. Instead of trying to keep Jesus' commands, we have to focus on becoming the type of person that obedience naturally flows out of. That's where the focus needs to be. Right now, you may not be able to love your enemies any more than I could just go out right now and run a marathon. It's impossible. I would never be able to do that. Maybe you can't love your enemies right now. But there are some things you can do, you see, so that eventually you will become the person that can love your enemies. Just like there are some things that I could do to start training so that eventually I could run a marathon. You see, if we just go focusing on external behavior and not really focusing on deep heart transformation inside of us of becoming the kind of person that can love our enemies, Jesus' commands will always feel like this un carryable burden, this back-breaking burden that is an impossible duty to perform. But if we are so transformed into the depths of our being, if in the, intric the intric intricacies of our thoughts and our feelings and our desires and our disposition. If we are so transformed there in the depths of who we are, that's only when we will find Jesus' strategy for living easy and light. Look, does a healthy apple tree have to strive to bear fruit, delicious apples? No. It naturally just produces fruit. The, apples, the apple tree's inner nature is so healthy, its root system so healthy, so connected into adequate supplies of water and minerals and resources, that it just naturally bears fruit. Actually, what would be more difficult is for the apple tree not to bear fruit. So it is with us. We must focus on the root and not the fruit. And so the million-dollar question becomes, how does one experience the right transformation of the soul and heart and mind that changes them into a person that naturally can just live the commands of Jesus? Here's the answer. We must become Jesus' apprentice so that he can train us in godliness. We must become Jesus' apprentice so that he can train us in godliness. What does it mean to be Jesus' apprentice? It means you are committed to being with him, to learn from him, how to live like him. Without this commitment, we will simply not be transformed in the depths of our being. 
if you have not experienced much spiritual growth in the last few months, six months, year, five years, it's because you're not Jesus' apprentice. You may profess faith and belief in Christ, but you're not his apprentice. You're not intentionally being with him to learn from him how to be like him. And that's why you're not experiencing spiritual growth. You see, when we become his apprentice, he does train us. What does that training look like? Well, he reveals to us parts, change that needs to happen inside of us. He shows us what those parts are. And then he leads us into a training plan that consists of encountering and engaging with his truth, encountering and engaging with certain practices and experiences, and encountering and engaging with Christian community. That's the recipe for spiritual transformation. I guarantee that if you look back, when you have experienced the most spiritual growth in your life, it has consisted, those components were there. There was truth you were engaging with, God's truth that you were engaging with. There were certain practices and experiences that you were engaging in, and you were engaging with other Christian brothers and sisters that could help you in that pursuit. And so you see, we put forth effort in our transformation. We are not passive. God may zap you miraculously and just like make you completely like Jesus and one zap. He could, but that's just not what I see. It's not what I've experienced. We have a role to play. God causes the growth, no doubt. But we are not completely passive. Just as we can do nothing apart from Christ, if we do nothing, we'll be apart from Christ. So, let's look at, let's say God is showing us that we need to become a person that loves, that can naturally love our enemies. All right, so we need to train with Jesus. We can't just try harder. Because remember, we can't run the marathon of loving our enemies yet. We're not capable of that yet. We need to train. So if you just try and love your enemies and try and strain, it's not going to happen. Good luck with that. It won't work. But as we have also said, we're responsible to do that. So we can't just do nothing. We got to train with Jesus. Look, in Matthew 5, 45 through 48, he gives us into a window. He gives us a window into the truth and the practices we need to engage in if we are going to be transformed in the depths of our being into a person that can love our enemies. First, we have to immerse ourselves in the truth that God the Father seeks the welfare of his enemies. He seeks the welfare of the wicked. Look, there has never been a person more insulted, more taken advantage of, more mistreated, more underappreciated, more abused, more aligned, more wrongfully accused than God himself. Millions of people today are still treating him this way. And yet Jesus has said in Matthew 5, 45... He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
today, this beautiful, gorgeous day, there are plenty of people out today that are evil, evil, evil in the sun God is causing as an act of his grace to let that sun shine on them and to warm their bodies. God cares for them. He seeks their welfare. And what's more, he desires all men to be saved. All men includes the vile, the godless, the God-hating people of the world. God desires them to be saved. So much so that he joyfully allowed himself to be brutally murdered in order to save them. God's love for his enemy is so astounding. Romans 5, 6 through 8 tells us more. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we read this verse, and as we think about God causing the sun and the rain to come upon the just and the unjust, we cannot help but think that we're a part of the unjust that we are a part of the enemy crew that Jesus has loved. And we can't help but think, but because of his radical grace, he has rescued us out of that group. And as we bathe ourselves in this truth, as we experience it, as we meditate on it, as we think on it, as we ponder its depth, that will transform us. It will transform us. God will use it to transform us in the depths of our being. But there's still more that we have to engage with if we're going to be transformed from the inside out. There's more truth. Check this truth out. Um, the word, two words give us this truth. It says that God causes the rain and the sun to, you know, go upon the just and the unjust. Right there in those two words, God causes is another piece of truth that we so have to bathe in if we're going to become the sort of person that can love our enemies. What is those two words? What are those two words tell us? God causes. What does that mean? God's in control. He is sovereign. He's, he is, he has authority over our enemies he has authority over our circumstances, which means he can redeem any circumstance. God is in control. In this understanding of knowing that God loves us so greatly and has loved us while we were his enemy, in this understanding that he is in control and he is sovereign, is a prerequisite for us to be able to love our enemies. It's a prerequisite for us to be able to say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 14, 17 through 21, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we not repay evil for evil? We're so immersed in the truth that God has loved us in our evil. And he, if anybody deserves to pay, he, as the good judge, knows it, and he will make them pay. Right? But we need more truth if we're going to become the sort of person. We need more than truth if we're going to become the sort of person that can naturally love our enemies. As great as truth is, it's not sufficient. It's not. I just spoke with a, two groups of men that know they're supposed to pray, but yet don't as much as they know they should. Is truth the problem? Nah, I think they know. You see, we have to engage in certain practices and experiences that are going to allow us to put on truth, to wear it, to apply it. And that's why in our passage, Jesus highlights prayer. It's a practice. Perhaps if you're going to become the sort of person that can love your enemy, why don't you start with praying for your competitors? Pray that God would bless them. Or even your enemy, if you have an enemy, there's, God uses prayer to soften our heart towards our enemies as we pray for them. That is something we can do. We can right now pray for them. We can do that. And as we engage in that practice, over and over, God has a way of using it to transform us. Even if we start praying begrudgingly. Another practice Jesus says to engage in, if we truly want to be transformed in the depths of our being, a person that naturally loves our enemies, is that we do good works towards them, bless them, you know, show good to them. We, not, we may not be able to love our, our enemy from the heart, but we can do a nice thing for them. And as we do, God uses that practice to transform us. He gives us new thoughts and feelings toward the person. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He speaks how God can use right action to bring about right feeling. Check this out. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. And you don't just need truth, and you don't just need certain practices and experiences to engage in. 
you also need Christian community if you're going to be transformed in the depths of your being into a person that can naturally love your enemies. You're going to need the support and the challenge of brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, we talked a lot about that there, so I'm not going to say any more to that. Look, and I'll wrap up here. There's probably no greater way to be salt and light in the dark world that we live in than by loving your enemies. Probably nothing demonstrate Jesus' kind of love more fully and completely than when his people do not repay evil for evil, but evil for good. You know that little bit that we read from Apostle Paul that says about burning coals, heaping burning coals on a person's head? You know what I think that means? I think when we love them, instead of repaying them evil for evil, we pray, when we repay them with love, I think it has the potential to jolt somebody out of their stance. Because you know what they're expecting when they pay you evil? They're expecting evil in return because that's how the world operates. But when you respond with love... It has the potential to open them up to the error of their ways. And I think another reason why God says, you know, you'll heap coals upon their head. Because it will either turn them away from their error and make them better. Or it will push them further and further into the bitterness that they live in, which will be an act of God's judgment. So that's why... And so we don't, we don't do it as a motivation for God's judgment. We do it as a motivation out of love for the person. But I think that's how God uses us, our repayment of love for evil. I want to tell you this. If you are, and I'll finish here, if you are connected to Christ, God lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You are filled with the fullness of God. You have the same power in you that raised Jesus from the dead. You are dead to sin and alive to God. You have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have become a partaker of God's divine nature. You are pro- progressively being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of God. Don't succumb to this attitude that defeats you from the start that loving your enemies is impossible. It's possible. God's kingdom is available to you. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I so appreciated uh, Brandon's word to us as we were singing earlier. The pressure is off. We don't have to fall into those two errors, one being... You know, there's just no way this can happen, so I may not even try. Talk about a pessimistic attitude that Mr. Rodacker spoke against, and it shouldn't be our attitude as your followers. Also, we don't have to fall into the other error, which is probably equal and opposite. That, oh my goodness, the pressure's on me. I got to just go out and run that marathon of loving my enemies immediately right now. No. The pressure's off. All we have to do is become your apprentice.
All we have to do is yoke ourselves to you, and you will teach us your unforced rhythms of grace that will transform us in the depths of our being so that we find your yoke a burden that is easy and light so that we become these apple trees that naturally bear good fruit without the striving and straining. Lord, I pray that there will be every person here is intentional about apprenticing themselves to you. I pray that they would come, with, come to you and they, they would come to your people. And in doing so, they would learn from you. What is your training plan for them? What truth do they need to engage with? What experiences and practice, practices do they need to engage with? So that over time, they will be able to do things that they could never do by direct effort. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.